What do we treasure? Our theme for this morning. I wonder if you're ready for another teaching moment. Not a long lesson, but an important one, because this morning I again want to begin by teaching you just one word of biblical Greek, but an important one. It's the word hodos. Hodos. It is in fact a word that we have come across before, but we passed it over when I last preached, because it wasn't a significant focus then. In Mark's Gospel, it's found firstly in chapter 1 and verse 2, when the evangelist quotes from the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord. The word hodos, often used in scripture, simply means the way. We find it later, for example, being used by the Apostle Paul when testifying before Governor Felix to describe the early Christian community. He said to Felix, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect of Judaism. And earlier on, when before his conversion, Saul asked for letters of authority from the high priest, it was for authority that if he found any followers of the way, he might arrest them and take them to Damascus. So the way is a very early term for what later came to be known as Christianity. It is thought that the name followers of the way came about because of the movement of the early Christians. And we recall from the Gospels the early sending of first of all the 12 disciples and then of the 72 disciples in pairs. Sending, ascending out to proclaim the good news of the nearness of the kingdom of God. An echo of the very first message that Jesus uttered at the outset of his ministry. They were called, they were commissioned, they were sent. So back to the Greek word hodos, which literally means a road or way travelled, with the added implication of travelled for a clear purpose. Maybe a wee bit difficult to read, but that's a, an interlinear um, Greek and English translation, so you can just, just see it there. So, the implication being travelling for a clear purpose. When we turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 35, therefore, we cannot lightly overlook Mark's use of the word hodos. For here we have Jesus not casually going about his business, but intent on starting out on the way, his way, a deliberate and purposeful journey. Jesus had only just set out, however, when he was quickly interrupted by a man who ran up to him and fell upon his knees. 
Now, sometimes the headings in modern Bibles, which are not actually part of the text, actually spoil the build-up. Although I noticed a, a, a less obtrusive one there than in, in the NIV, which I've got here. But these headings can, can actually take away sometimes, rather than enhance what we're about. Because, and this being one of these occasions, because as, for as yet we know nothing of the status of this man that runs up to Jesus. All we're told at the outset is that a man ran up to Jesus and went down on his knees. Only later on in the passage are we told that he had great wealth by Matthew, that he was young, and by Luke, that he was a ruler. A term which probably meant a synagogue official, although we have to note that it was also a term used by John when introducing Nicodemus in chapter 3 and verse 1 of John's Gospel. So this man may even have been a member of the Sanhedrin. Now it would be pure speculation to suggest either that the person concerned was Joseph of Arimathea, who followed Jesus secretly and was a wealthy man who later asked for Jesus' body and had it laid in his own tomb, or indeed the Apostle Paul, who is also thought to have been fairly well off and was an official of the Sanhedrin. Yet these two have been suggested as possibles by scholars. But for Mark, and us, and for now, he is just a man. Probably a quite well-dressed man, certainly in comparison to most but probably not ostentatiously. And running towards Jesus, he falls at his feet in humble plea and addresses him as good teacher and asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just as Jesus did, for now, we put that question on hold. For just a moment, let us try to put ourselves in that young man's shoes. Here he is, desperately seeking the answer to a sincere and deep question. And Jesus stops him in his track with another question. Why do you call me good? Now, Jesus regularly asked questions of people because it's a good way to get people to think about things. Ask them a question. An encouragement to think things through for themselves instead of giving pat answers, which in the case of faith will simply not do. So here he asks, why do you call me good? And says, no one is good except God. Now, on the one hand, we could see this as a rather loaded question, an invitation for the young man to acknowledge Jesus as Lord or deny him. But it's doubtful if the young man is ready to answer that question as profoundly as that, although he must have gone away with these words in his mind as he contemplated the aftermath of their encounter. 
but we are still here. With Jesus asking the self-same question of us, why do you call me good? Now, I'm pretty certain that most of us here have already accepted Jesus as Lord and God. But there may still be some folk in the congregation or watching online who are still on a journey of faith. People who recognize the goodness of God in Jesus, who recognize his love, his compassion for others, but who still remain a bit uncertain as to who Jesus really was. Now, if you happen to be one of those, either at home or here, then listen to what Jesus is saying. For he's saying no one is good except God. And then ask yourself, why is it that I too think this man Jesus is good? What is it about him that makes him so special and worthy of consideration? And see if you can long evade the impact of his words. Only God is good. Because it demands a response. For the rest of us who claim to recognize Jesus as the Son of God and as God incarnate, what is the significance of this passage? Well, few of us, if any, even after this fiscal event of the past week, are really well off. Although most of us are fairly comfortably off, I think we would say. And as John said last week, we are certainly wealthy in global terms. So yes, there is a challenge to us all to use what we do and what we have well and wisely and be generous in our support of others who are in much greater need than ourselves. Of that there is no doubt. But the moral lesson of this story runs so much deeper than that already answered question because we know how we should respond. Firstly, it teaches us that true worth is not to be found in this world's riches or in what this world considers important, but in the deeper things of life. And it's not about doing the right thing so much as about being the right person. For if anything, Jesus taught that true obedience to God lies not in the strict keeping of the moral law, but in caring compassion. And so it is no wonder that on other occasions he emphasized neighbor love alongside love of God. And that later on the apostles clearly taught the importance of holding these two great commands together. Love God. Love people. Now we don't know whether or not the rich young ruler, as he is often referred to, took anything of what Jesus said to him to heart. We don't know whether upon later reflection he 
changed his mind or went off and did some good. All we know is that at this point, he went away sad. Sad because he could not do what Jesus asked of him. Sad that he had not, as he sought and thought, found the answer to his burning question about inheriting eternal life. Wealth, it seems, was the great obstacle in his life. And Jesus himself said to the disciples that it was hard for people of great wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. As hard as it would be in that memorable metaphor for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. There are many people, I'm sure we all know some of them, maybe we've even been there ourselves, but we've all known people who encounter obstacles and stumbling blocks on the path that they would like to travel. I would like to, but I can't. People with unhealed hurts, with unresolved griefs, with irreconciled conflicts and deep regrets, great obstacles that stand in their way of their ability to trust. For that ultimately is what this story in many ways is really about. It's about trusting in Jesus. No, I'm not making light of the challenge to make good use of our wealth and resources to help others. But there is far more to life than money, whether you have it or you don't. Funny enough, on the way across this morning, I was listening to someone on the radio this morning that was talking about ethical capitalism how in the making of money you can do good and they pointed back to people like Andrew Carnegie um, and so on so you know nothing in, inherently um, evil about making wealth it's what you then do with it um, but you need to use it for good one of my granny's many sayings your granny probably said it too is that there's no pockets and shrouds or to put it another way, if you need it translated, you cannot take it with you when you go. And so we need to heed the lesson of the parable of the man who futilely built bigger and bigger barns in which to store his accumulating wealth, only to be taken unexpectedly from this world. We also know it can't buy you health. But recognizing these facts, it's important also to focus on the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples when, in amazement, they asked, Who then can be saved? The reply was profound. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. If only he had known it, 
the young man stood on the threshold of the one thing that he sought. Eternal life. And yet he walked away. Walked away from the only one who could actually give him what he sought. Maybe in the circumstances you would have too. I found my way out, Ian, by the way, from the Boys Brigade. It was called a call to ministry. <laughs> There's all things, there are things that we hold precious, but which we sometimes need to sacrifice to follow Jesus. It is precisely about walking in the ways, that word hodos again, Walking in the way of Jesus that this passage points to. The way that leads to life. John Collard began to make that clear last week in referring to the turning point in the gospel. For at this point they are now on their journey to Jerusalem. They are on the way to the cross. It was a way that would permit of no unnecessary encumbrances. It called for sacrifice. It called for commitment. Indeed, it called for single-mindedness. Jesus later said to James and John, Can you really drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? meaning his sacrificial death. The problem with the rich young man was not so much his wealth, but his reliance upon it. And with that, his lack of willingness to let go of worldly security and put his trust and the one who is the source of all earth's riches and its only hope of true life and salvation. He wasn't alone. The disciples themselves had a flaky moment when they said, look at what we have given up for you. you know, with the implicit question of, is it, is it all worth it? To be told that there is a greater wealth and worth to be had in following Christ. It was no less a person than Jesus himself, according to John 14 and verse 6, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, that word, hodos, the way. A way which he also once described as a narrow way when he said, small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. So what do we really treasure? Do we treasure worldly wealth and worldly riches? The good things of this world? Or do we value most of all and trust in 
our relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son? And are we willing to live under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit to walk his way, his hodos? For that is undoubtedly the most fundamental question of all. And it demands a response. Let us pray.